together with American Songwriter, we had the opportunity to talk to B. Beeman over Zoom video. Beeman was born and raised in St. Louis, Missouri. He talks about how he got into music at a very early age, started playing guitar around seven years old, and did that all through high school. He was in the high school jazz band, ended up going to college at uh, UC Santa Cruz, and there he started a band called Hippie Grenade. And he was in that band for a number of years and took it very seriously and eventually ran its course. And that's when he started his uh, solo project, Be Beeman, put out his first record called Cookbook. But it wasn't until his second record, Beeman, where things started to really happen for him. He ended up having the opportunity to play on Later with Jules Holland, which is a huge show in the UK. And while he was on that show, the other musical guest that evening was Soundgarden. And he grew up as a huge fan of Chris Cornell and Soundgarden. And he was able to hang out with the guys kind of after the show and ended up being asked to join Chris Cornell on his 2013 North American tour. So he did this huge tour with Chris Cornell, got to come out on stage and play Hunger Strike with him on tour every night. And from there, his career really, really got going. He told us a lot about the success of that record. I uh, talked about his album Rhythm and Reason. His first record of all cover songs he put out called Substitute Preacher. He tells us all about the Peace of Mind record and the theme kind of behind it where he launched each song as a podcast episode. So there's a theme to each song. Throughout the course of the podcast, the end of it ended up being the full record for Peace of Mind. He talks about that. And his most recent release, Substitute Preacher 2, which is another collection of cover songs from The Cars and ACDC, Frank Sinatra, Black Sabbath. So definitely check that out, Substitute Preacher 2. And it'd be awesome if you check out our YouTube channel and Facebook page. We have some incredible video interviews up there at Bringing It Backwards. And it would be amazing if you follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with B. Beeman. So um, our podcast is all about you, your journey in music, and uh, how you got to where you are now. Cool. Um, so I was just going to, I always start off with, uh, where were you born and raised? I did read um, St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah, I'm from St. Louis, uh, born and raised there. My parents are immigrants from a country called Sri Lanka, which is like an island just south of India. Um, and they've been here since like 1969, 1970, um, by way of California, then Chicago, then St. Louis. Um, and my mom uh, was more of like an academic type person. My dad's a little bit more of a <laughs> silly type person and okay. likes entertainment and grew up watching American movies and watching and listening to um, American music on the radio there's u.s bases in sri lanka and then of course uh british bases before that but they had a u.s radio station there so he would uh listen to that and so when i was growing up he would he introduced me to some stuff like oldies radio and stuff like credence clearwater and uh like all that 60s classic stuff that they would play you know in the 80s and 90s as oldies um which is awesome just great feel good music um mm -hmm. and that was a little bit of my introduction to music in terms of uh lighting any kind of spark or realizing that there's joy to be had from music so uh -huh. um and uh, i'm a second i'm well i'm the second of two kids so i was I had an older brother who's playing guitar and also heavily influenced what i would listen to as i grew up and as a teenager but uh he had a guitar but he never really played it or, or tried and so I was sitting in the corner in my house and I started playing that guitar when I was like six or seven um wow. I took some, some lessons and stuff um but like classical lessons which I despise <laughs> Especially <laughs> like, classical guitar is pretty tough um and it's oh just yeah not, like finger picking and all that yeah you have to be there's like a foot stand on your left foot so you have the guitar on your left knee if you're right-handed which is kind of the opposite of what let's say you see Neil Young doing or, you know, any songwriter like that, it's on their right knee. So anyway, it's just like a total different style. It's maybe, you know, Andre Segovia, which I've gotten appreciation, appreciation for since then, like later as I grew older. Um, but that's really advanced stuff. And I really just like 
like simpler songs. You know, I like, I guess I always liked, you know, that I, I like Dylan when I was young, but that's so simple, such a simple presentation, I guess you could say. Not that his lyrics are simple, but his presentation is is pretty straightforward. And um, and well, to say that I only like Dylan is not really true. Um, I was really into heavy rock and roll music growing up, okay. um, and so I learned like all the classic rock songs and stuff. I was a guitarist first and foremost, and um, I only started singing when I was like twenty or something, and I started wow. playing guitar when I was about seven so i'm a much in my mind a much more accomplished guitar player than i am a singer um mm-hmm. but that's not really what people see first uh from me they see my hear my voice first um which i understand um but i'm always like a everything i write generally is like is this cool on guitar and is it also good vocally but i'm always like coming from a guitar centric perspective for sure Mm-hmm. Um, and, and growing up in St. Louis, there's a lot of blues there. Um, in Chicago gets a lot of, a lot of credit for blues, developing the blues sound, but there's a lot of towns, you know, from the South on the way up to Chicago that developed, helped develop the sound. And St. Louis is a very interesting historical city being on the Mississippi river. So there's all these French and Spanish and British influences, there um which is kind of unusual in uh in america people don't really think about how france and spain were heavily involved in, in the development of the country but um musically there's chuck berry of course one of mm-hmm. my heroes growing up just he's so easy to fall in love with in my opinion you know like he's his lyrics are great his stories are great as well as his awesome guitar mm-hmm. um and Ike and Tina Turner and like a hundred blues musicians are from there. So the blues there is like a big deal. Um, although it doesn't get a lot of credit for it. Uh, but there's a lot of good blues coming out of there. Or there was, it's kind of dying, dying art, I would say. Uh, <laughs> not, not so not hitting the top of the charts these days, but um, yeah, St. Louis is a, a really good melting pot of music in a lot of ways. Sure. Um, so it was interesting to grow up there. Wow. And I mean, that's fascinating that you started so early. I mean, you said seven. Yeah. I would say I'm like a great guitar player. Like I wouldn't say I'm a great singer, although I'm, I'm I've gotten pretty You're good. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I beg to differ on that one. <laughs> I, well, I have, I have, uh, yeah. So I, I agree. I've, I've worked hard at it and I love singing and stuff, but um, it's like, if it's not good, not fun to play on guitar, I kind of like don't continue working on a song if I'm writing something or something. Oh, um, it's just kind of kind of funny um, that I'm so particular about the guitar stuff, mm-hmm. even though it's not necessarily the first thing that anybody cares about when they listen to me. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Well, tell me about like, so, you know, learning guitar and kind of picking up these covers, as, as you were saying, and, and being more into that heavier music. Like, what was the first, did you start a band early on? Or like, when did you really start performing in front of people? <laughs> Um, I didn't, I wasn't in a band really. I was, I was in a band like when I was younger, it was just my friends who also played guitar and had bass, bass guitar. Our band was, I think it was called the Bottled Up Emotions. We were about like 10 years old. Wow. And, that's a pretty progressive name for a 10 year old. Oh yeah. We were pretty <laughs> proud. I, that wasn't my idea though. It was like one of the other guys' ideas and it was like clearly the winner out of our, all of ours. Um, and but it was like three guitar players and a bass. It wasn't a band. It was just like <laughs> no drummer, no drummer. And I, uh, no drummer didn't, what's the point? Um, just kidding. And, uh, <laughs> we did like a talent show. I remember. And I played like all, uh, star spangled banner by Jimi Hendrix. And I have no idea what the other guys were doing. There's nothing they could really be doing during that. Uh, oh, that, that was the song good. you guys played. Well, so- I think I like took the lead and, was like i'm doing this or something and they just had to like fall in line or something i don't really know i think we had somebody help arrange something but i certainly didn't arrange anything i think i was being pretty selfish they were like burning their guitars while you played (laughs) (laughs) basically yeah Uh, that's cool and so so, but i wasn't in a lot of bands that was like a band i was in like you know high school band but i was not considered the best by, by a long shot. I was, there's like, I was like fourth chair or something. 
Um, and but I was good school, at what you, you played in the high school band. You said I played in the jazz band, but oh, cool. I couldn't, at that point, I wasn't like very into jazz at all, and I still am not. But uh, <laughs> but especially jazz guitar is not exactly my favorite uh, genre of jazz of jazz genre of jazz. I just said, but um, and. And I was I was okay, but um, in when it came to like learning Zeppelin songs or Black Sabbath or Rage Against the Machine or Nirvana, I like actually already knew all that stuff really well. But it just didn't. When I did the band tryout for jazz band, it was like that's not a good that's not a currency <laughs> in jazz. <laughs> so it really wasn't worth much. Um, but I was very show up good. And do like Down Rodeo as your audition song. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that would have. I would have gotten sent away, but I, I don't know what I did, but it was like something simple or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I just, I was very good, but I just wasn't good at that. But I wasn't in any rock bands, I guess, until I went to college at, um, I went to UC Santa Cruz. Um, so I was made it back out to California, okay. which is where my, where my parents um, came through San Jose, California. So, they had a lot of family friends there and we would oh, visit cool. when I was younger. Yeah. And um, so I always loved California growing up. And I, as I was a teenager, like Bill Graham uh, eras shows and stuff like that, like Santana mm-hmm. and Creedence Clearwater and like those sixties and seventies Bay area bands, Sly and the family stone tower of power. Like I mm-hmm. love those bands so much. Um, and so that was kind of a draw as well, just like going back to the Bay Area some somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. And so I was in a band called Hippie Grenade, and that was like the first serious band I was in in Santa Cruz with uh, some really talented players. And it was, uh, you could say it was like a funk outfit, I guess you could say, kind of like a heavier funk outfit. I would kind of, uh, people would cringe when I'd say this, but it was <laughs> I said it was kind of like Soundgarden meets Sly and the Family Stone. Um, interesting which which is interesting and some some people didn't think that was cool but i thought it was cool um but we (laughs) said we were a great band um and um we were together for about seven years or something like that and i um that was 2000 to like seven 2007 and then i decided to just do a solo act i guess or like try it out solo uh because i was doing a lot of acoustic shows on the side i was like doing solo stuff and stuff with the band and I just kind of started leaning heavier into that and kind of took me that direction of just being the only one writing because I was writing material with the band um, and the band was democratic and democracy can be a little bit ugly sometimes as we have seen (laughs) recently Um, and it's you know uh it was easier to make decisions by myself. And even mm-hmm. on stage, when you're alone, the road is lonely, but on stage you're in control of everything. Um, and it's cool. You're the rhythm section. You're, you, uh, you're the lead and it's freeing. It's a lot of work, honestly, to be the only one up there and, and holding and holding the audience's attention, mm-hmm. but it's, it's something I can do pretty naturally. So I enjoy it. Um, but that's not to say I only play solo. I, I play with band. Mm-hmm. band uh, quite a bit half the time i'd say sure um with with that after the first band or after hippie grenade kind of ran its course and you started the solo mm-hmm. project what was like did what was the first thing that happened like were you you must have been taking music pretty seriously at that point if you had been doing it you know seven years through college where did you yeah so we had been doing it for about four years post-college pretty seriously um playing in san francisco and the bay area Oakland and around. Um, but it was just it was personal politics and stuff like that. They're still my friends. It's just working with them is, and probably working with me, same thing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had run its course, like you said. Um, and I was taking it seriously. And that was like part of why I wanted to do it on my own, because I could just kind of have complete control of what I would do, mm-hmm. what I would be doing career wise. Um, so yeah, I was taking it very seriously. I was writing a lot, um, con- like constantly. And so by the time 2010 rolled around, I was recording an album, which was called Beeman, B-H-I-M-A-N. And 
uh, that got released in 2012. And it's a really cool album. I just, it has like a really, I don't remember what my inspiration of like what, Oh, I know it was. It was I was listening to Blood on the Tracks a ton mm-hmm. uh, by Bob Dylan. By Bob it's Dylan. Like one of, okay. Yeah, one of it's just a classic sounding record, and has I love a, that album too. <laughs> yeah, it has a feeling like from beginning to end, and it was inspiring. And I think I kind of like took that sort of energy and brought it to my album. Mm-hmm. And it has a kind of this acoustic rock, whatever. I don't know. That's like, I don't like that those two words together, but. Um, that's the best I can do. Yeah. Um, let's call it acoustic rock. Um, and with that yeah. record, like, I mean, you put out cookbook. That was the first album you, you did, right? Yes. Like 207. I did. 20. Yeah. Okay. 2007. And I, it's not available anymore because I kind of like took it down. I wanted, <laughs> I wasn't very proud of it, even though there's good songs. I didn't really love the production. And so I have those files. I might release that again, maybe remix some of it. And or, I mean, even Bob Dylan would regurgitate songs and re-record them on later mm-hmm. albums. And so that might happen. Uh, <laughs> but I, I like the songs. They're, that album was like, you know how like the freshman album of a band or artist is the collection of everything they've ever done up until that point. And then mm-hmm. the sophomore album is, okay, now I have to write new stuff, right? right. So that first album was everything I'd ever written since I was 18 or something. Um, and at that point I was 2007 was, what was I 25 or something? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was like a long, long, uh, chunk of time where I was writing for that album, essentially, even though yeah. I didn't know I was writing, writing sure. for it, but well, they, they yeah. don't, they say like you have your whole life to write your first album and then like a yeah. years to follow up the second. <laughs> that's, that's exactly what I was trying to say, but I didn't say it as eloquently as that. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, when when you put out uh, Beam and the set the you know your second record was what was I know you got to do some pretty big touring with that album and you got to be on te- television and like a lot mm-hmm. of stuff happened with that record. What kind of got the ball rolling? Um, well, I think I had well I had a cool music video for the lead single Gutter Snipe and I, I well I did get on TV. I got on like the biggest TV show in in England. It's just yeah. which at the time was called Jules later with Jules Holland on BBC two or BBC one. I'm not sure. Um, but I've actually never been on American TV, but I've actually had a, almost a be- better amount of success in England. Um, but that might also be that there's a lot of South Asians there because of British colonialism and a lot of people from Pakistan and India have, mm-hmm. and Sri Lanka have come to England and they're kind of part of the fabric of society in a way. Um, almost the way like, but in America, it's not, people don't look at Indian uh, Americans or whatever you uh, might call them um, quite the same way. They're not like part of the fabric in that same way. Not yeah. yet. Um, so I've had some good success over there. Um, a lot of, got a lot of traction over there, honestly. Um, not that I haven't had enviable success in America as well. Um, sure. but I thought it was noticeable when I went over there, uh, just a different sort of energy. Um, did, but real quick, did, were, did people like, like, how did you start seeing, I mean, were there strict, like, were people picking up your record off online and like, how did you start seeing numbers and getting to the point where you get to play on Jules Holland, like in, in, you know, in, in the UK, yeah. whereas like, I mean, when you're a, an artist from Santa Cruz or, or Bay Area, yeah. right? I mean, like, how did yes. that connection happen? Well, we had a, a distribution deal out there and um, it was kind of a, they had a publicist that they worked with and that publicist just did a really good job. And she uh, reached out to the Jules Holland people, uh, which is basically like the Saturday Night Live equivalent of like, Right, whatever big I mean, show you might massive. do as a musician, yeah, yeah it's massive. Everyone's like Paul McCartney, yeah, <laughs> Paul McCartney, and and so on. Um, and it's a really unique format. Um, if 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 you go back for your listeners uh, to check that show out, because it's a real fun way to check out music because you're checking out new music, you're checking out legends, um, all at the same time. It's unique in that it's a 
almost like playing in the round um, where everybody has to listen to everybody. So Paul, if Paul McCartney was there, they'd have to listen to me. And the legends that <laughs> the legends that night were Soundgarden, and I'm a huge sound. I was a huge Soundgarden fan, and I got mm-hmm. to meet them and and everything. That's amazing. But but to but to get on the show, I think um, I think just the talent buyer or whoever what whatever the title is, just saw something in in the video because the video is like this really interesting slow motion train footage. Uh, from India and if you're on a train in India you're zipping past at, what 50 miles an hour or whatever and there's a lot of scenes going by and you don't know what's going on it looks beautiful but my video was this slow-mo video and you can see all these amazing scenes developing as you go by um, town after town after town um, mm-hmm. and it's kind of mesmerizing along with the music which is a really good driving like car driving song um, or train writing song, I guess. Um, so the talent buyer saw that, really liked it. I mean, it's a cool song. It's still one of my favorite songs. Um, and so that's the song I played on the show. And uh, I didn't, I, it's not like I was so in demand that they they booked me for the show. They It was kind of on the hunch of this talent buyer. He's like, oh, this is cool. Let's have him on. Um, and that actually elevated me in England um, quite a bit, like overnight. Mm-hmm. Almost. Wow. As you can imagine, like being on SNL or something or right. whatever, or what used to be Ed Sullivan type of deal. Sure, um, sure. You know, um, which is awesome. So like the next thing I know, I'm opening for like Rodriguez, who sings the song Sugar Man, which is an amazing song. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody should check that that guy out. But um I was doing a lot of cool stuff, opening for Lucinda Williams out in UK, um, doing my own headlining shows. Um, but I was also, I was flying back and forth. It was a lot of travel um, and a lot of crazy hours and stuff like that. Um, and so I was going back and forth between touring the East Coast and the West Coast of the US and going back to England to do follow-up shows, doing tours around Europe, um, France and Scandinavia and, you know, Holland and stuff like that. Um, sounds very exciting. It's kind of, gru- it's kind of grueling <laughs> but, uh, be- because you're not like, you're not going on vacation. You're going, you're, you're getting into whatever Brussels one day you're there, you get a meal, you walk around for like an hour, you go to this show, you're, you're doing a sound check, you hang around, maybe get a coffee, you play the show, you're tired, you go to bed, you wake up and then you go to the next town. Um, and then you do it all over again. So it, it's not like, oh, I got to spend a week in Brussels or something like that. It's 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 fast moving, as any touring artist will tell you. Um, but it's crazy. You get a lot of cool memories, for sure. That's amazing. And you ended up getting uh, the chance to tour with Chris Cornell, yeah, didn't you? Yeah, Chris. Yeah. And so that all resulted from going on Jules Holland. So like I said um, earlier, is that what's interesting about Jules Holland is that it's in, I think this is the right term, but in the round is where everybody who's playing that night has to sit and watch and wait their turn to play the song. And so there's about five bands on the show and Soundgarden was the band, one of the bands. And so they played and another band played and then I would play and everybody's watching each other. And afterwards uh, I was just like, these guys literally are my childhood heroes. My favorite band growing up. I learned like I had this Hal Leonard tab book that I would, or Cherry Lane. Those were the two giants in guitar tablature books in the nineties. Um, but I had the super unknown album uh, tab book from Soundgarden. And I like learned every single song. I like knew everything when I was like 15 years old. And um, so I was like a massive fan and um, I got to meet them. I was like, this is kind of crazy that they're on this show and they happened to be here. And so I was like nervous, but I was like, I got to go say hello and tell them what they meant to me and blah, blah, blah. Sure. You know, something that something that they would not care too much about, but it would be more for me. And I ended up doing it and they invited me to have a beer. Uh, so I got to hang out with these guys who I knew all about. And it was cool. And But Chris, I talked to for just a brief moment. He was like, oh, that's cool. Um, I loved your song, blah, blah, blah. But he kind of, at the time, he was like a recovering uh, alcoholic. I don't want to uh-huh. get into get into his stuff too much because sure. I don't know the the nitty gritty. But he would 
he would leave after the show not to not be maybe around people drinking, but the rest of the guys had a beer and I hung out with them afterwards. And Kim file, who's an Indian of Indian ancestry. He's fully American, but he's technically, he would say an Indian American from Mm -hmm. Chicago, um, which is another alluring aspect of Soundgarden, but to see a, a Brown South Asian (laughs) dude playing guitar in a rock band. Right. Uh, that was cool for me. So he was always a hero. And we were talking afterwards and he was saying how Chris was saying, like, my right hand was like, like a rock, like very steady and whatever. He was noticing how I was playing and some other stuff. I don't remember. Um, and I was flattered and I hung out with them for a short bit. And that was very cool. Dream come true, I would say. And yeah, like, n- nine months later, Chris's management team asked my team if I would go out and tour for his solo acoustic tour in the following fall, winter. And it ended up being like an enormous North American tour, like 45 dates across mm-hmm. two and two and a half months. And it was incredible. Like he, I got to play hunger strike with him every night. Um, wow. Because I, yeah, it was like, he was like, we should play a song. The first night we had a show, he's like, we should play a song together. And I was like, okay, let me think about it. I didn't want to like, do some song that I didn't like for some reason. No offense to any songs to his of his, right? Uh, but I had I had my favorites, right? So I was like, okay, that would be epic. I, and so I was like, some wise people have told me you don't get what you you won't get what you don't ask for, right? That's a saying. Uh-huh. Like you don't get what you don't ask for. So I straight up asked him for hunger strike, and uh, he was like, sure, let's do it, no hesitation. And so we end up doing it every night, and. Every every once in a while, we do another song. We did some audio slave songs, and at one point, he broke into Hotel California in Philadelphia, wow. uh, and and made me do the Jill Walsh guitar solo, uh, just <laughs> like, like just a totally unrehearsed, like messing with me. Uh, definitely a good memory. Pretty funny. That's amazing. Uh, but yeah, it was. He was like uh, probably my best champion of my music. Like an amazing friend to have in the music industry i would say and it's it was just flattering that he was like yeah like he lived in miami at one point he's like i was listening to your album on repeat this is the beeman album so for him to like know my songs like that was pretty awesome wow sure. yeah oh my gosh i had an opportunity to meet him um mm-hmm. in, in san diego i don't know if you're on maybe you're on the tour it was right around the higher truth when he put out higher truth um the solo yeah. record it was 2013. I did play, okay. I played San Diego. It was called like the Casablanca or something. I don't know where it was called. I forget. Okay. No, um, that's probably not right. But yeah, I, 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 my wife and I had a chance to meet. I was working for a radio station. That's where my background oh, was cool. all from radio. So I know the Bay Area pretty well. I used to work for Live 105 in San Francisco. Oh, and, um, cool. But, uh, it, we, we had the chance to meet Chris Cornell and it was like, it was so much different than than meeting any other artist I'd ever met. It was like you knew you're in the presence of like a legend. It was it's hard to even explain. It was just so weird. Well, it's like imagine like meeting Johnny Depp kind of is what I tell people. Like, <laughs> I don't know if that's what your experience was, but I'm like, yeah, he has like an allure or something like there's some mis- mysteriousness to him. But he's also very friendly and really funny and and. Yeah, warm. very cool. Yeah, very warm. I mean, he he played. He did a little acoustic set, basically for the people at the radio station. He did Joseph. Uh, okay, and it oh, was cool. like, I don't know. It was like a like a religious experience, you know. Just having him play that song, I was like, oh my gosh, like this is just so. I'm. It was. He, it was he, insane. Watching him work was awesome. Not just on stage, but he would he'd really be working like a lot throughout the day on warming up his vocals but also just practicing he'd always have like a guitar handy and he'd be working on something and it's funny you know he has this huge voice that he's you know probably blown out like 10 times from (laughs) just belting super hard which i've Uh I've blown my voice out from belting and stuff like that and sometimes by midday or afternoon like five or six or seven hours before the show he'd be seeing it and wouldn't it would not sound that good <laughs> i'll just put it that way <laughs> i'd be like whoa like whoa are you gonna be able to do it tonight um right. he would always hit always get there he'd always get to like 
the most professional. Like he would he would be able to sing everything by the end of the night, and he would play like three hour shows sometimes of just him like doing all this heavy heavy rock material like Robert Plant style stuff, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Um, and it's like kind of unbelievable to to watch him. Um, it's like watching an athlete or something. And his right his his muscles were his throat his vocal cords. Um, and you know, he wasn't there. He, he would know when he would get to his warmed up voice. And sometimes it'd take a long time. Sometimes it'd just be there like in 10 minutes. Um, but it was, it was cool to watch him work. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Wow. Um, so, I mean, huge success on that, 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 that record that you put out, um, I mean, touring yeah. with, with them. And, and then, so the next record you did was uh, rhythm and reason. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, I did. Uh, I think in between that, I did a substitute preacher album, but it was pretty low key. It was like a covers album with Walk of Life on it and stuff. But I did do the follow up um, was uh, Rhythm and Reason. Okay, so there was a oh yeah, because Substitute Preachers two came out. uh, Just came out. Just came out. So Substitute Preachers had what? uh, Just um, like it was a covers record as well. Correct. Yeah, it was like um, Walk of Life. Highway to Hell. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, Rainbow in the Dark by Dio. Um, I can't remember. I'm losing my mind, I guess. Um, sure. I can't remember the two songs. Okay. Um, but kind of a classic rock sort of nod to classic rock, but kind of making it a little bit more old timey sounding. Uh-huh. Kind of um, like Highway to Hell, I did in a style kind of like an old Christian gospel style, uh, like the Carter family. Oh, uh, kind right. Of a, kind of a cheeky joke to make, like an inside joke for myself. Nobody else would get, but. Because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I couldn't I, find, I can't find that record on. It's not. Did you take it off streaming? No, platform? it should be there. Um, Let me I'm, see. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't I, check I, myself out enough. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll find it. I'll dig for it later. Um, yeah. But so, so. You put out in 2015. That's when you put out um, "Rhythm and Reason." Tell me about that album. What was that? Is that the yeah. record that you wrote? And like, what, what's or maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, I think I'm talking of thinking of "Peace of Mind," where you wrote it kind of over like a podcast. Yeah, that's "Peace of Mind." Okay, well, tell so me real quick about the other one. When we get there, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So from "Rhythm and Reason" was I doing tons of touring, um, and it was, I've always like had social commentary to make in all my songs, but I also kind of hide it away sometimes. So it's not uber apparent mm-hmm. uh, because it's kind of, I don't want it to be like rage against the machine, like where it's like take, you know, just like overt. And sometimes people, it's just a turn off. Um, but I, I love commentary. Uh, so I was touring a lot in Europe and the U S and at that time, um, there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment just around the world. Um, and so a lot of that album is kind of has this anti, not that it's anti-immigrant, but it's a, it had to do with immigration, I guess you could say okay. the, the whole thing. And so moving to Brussels was, I was in literally in Brussels airport and I saw all these different nationalities walking by and in Belgium and Brussels, there's a lot of Central Africans because Bel- Belgium went to Central Africa to mine diamonds or whatever the hell they did there mm-hmm. <laughs> and murder a lot of people, apparently. Um, but so there's and England went to India. So there's a lot of Indian immigrants there. France has a lot of North Africans. It's all like it's all it's all there. All those immigrants are there for kind of for a reason because and um, but there's a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. So I wrote this song called Move Into Brussels, and I disguised it as a love breakup song uh, where an immigrant has to kind of like leave its country. But I just didn't make it about immigration or leaving leaving your country is kind of like leaving your girlfriend or something. And I'm breaking up with you and I'm packing up and I'm leaving. Um, And that was inspiration for that. I have a song called There Goes the Neighborhood on there. Um, But it was all written like backstages uh throughout the world i guess um, wow almost entirely i would say because i didn't have a lot of home time at that time mm-hmm. um and then i had a child after that so i 
kind of made a conscious effort to try to be home more because, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of angles you can, uh, a lot of ways that you can parent. Um, but I think like the overriding thing is to just be around, be present. And when you're on tour, you're not present at all. Uh, you're far away and it's, I just didn't like that dynamic. So I tried to kind of cut back on touring. Uh, so the next albums were kind of written more at home, I guess you could say. Oh, okay. Okay. But if you have yeah, more, if you want to talk more about rhythm and reason, if you have more questions, I can talk about that. I kind of moved away. No, no, no. I was just wondering what, like, what would you say? Like the, the, like, what would you say the milestone of the record would be? Sorry, say that again. What would you, what would be the, like the big milestone that you could take away from that album? Oh, well, I did. A, I got to do it uh, for moving to Brussels. I got to do um, a music video with Keegan Michael Key, uh, who I had met doing a, this NPR radio show in St. Paul, Minneapolis called Wits. And it has, they have like a, just like Saturday Night Live has a actor and a musical guest. This show had an actor and musical guest. I was the musical guest and Keegan Michael Key was the actor. Wow. And we got to we got to hang out. We did some stuff on stage, which was like show business stuff. But then we got to hang out afterwards and have some drinks and uh, got friendly. And then I asked him to if he, he would do this music video with me with, for mu moving to Brussels. And he liked the song. And I was like, great. Now I just need a concept. And <laughs> so <laughs> I as scrambling for stuff. I thought about all these different ideas and like literally very last minute, 11th hour, um, I was watching this movie called Whiplash. And Whiplash was about this drummer who had a really overbearing t music teacher who was J.K. Simmons. It like won a bunch of awards. Yeah, I remember seeing it. That was a great right, He's a drummer. Yeah. And he just like, it's almost like a psychological thriller, I guess you could say. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, it almost, is. Almost almost horror but not horror that's not right but because yeah, jk like, simmons is like the villain almost <laughs> he's a villain yeah he's really like manipulative and, and sure yeah. um and so i came up with the idea uh to have keegan be the overbearing teacher and i'm the music student and we made a music video as kind of cheeky jokey thing and it was a lot of fun it was pretty awesome um to see him work he's just like a, a firehose of ideas so uh and we got a lot of good stuff we got a lot of stuff that couldn't even make it into the four minute video so it's it pretty cool for sure that's amazing that would be a, that would be a highlight i would say definitely definitely and does that take us to uh the piece of peace of mind right yeah yeah it does um so peace of mind kind of began i think i think it oh it, it's it basically began the summer of 2016 okay. even though it was only released in 2019 it was kind of a longer a, a bigger project for me i would say because i i, I released it as a podcast uh, which i'll explain uh, shortly yeah. um, but i began in 2016 i guess writing for it although i only was thinking i was writing a single um because um a friend of mine who's a very famous author named dave eggers um mm -hmm he lives in the Bay area and I've done some events with him and he was doing like this soundtrack, kind of an anti-Trump soundtrack. So this was summer of 2016 and, and Trump was campaigning for against Cl uh, Clinton and, you know, the writing was on the wall, so to speak uh, with him at that point and all the Russia stuff had come out. And so he, he asked me to write a song and I ended up writing this song called With Love from Russia, uh, kind of a joke on the James Bond movie theme. Yeah. And it's a, it's about Trump just kind of being owned by foreign interests. Um, kind of a funny song, uh, a little bit. Uh, but a but very cool song. It's very riff-driven. I love you know riffs and heavy rock and stuff like that. So it kind of has a heavy rock aspect to it. Mm -hmm. But it was the first song I ever produced uh, from start to finish uh, on my laptop, which was kind of a milestone for me. Oh, that's uh, amazing. I had spent 
a long time just like trying to get up to date uh, with technology and my setup and stuff like this. Um, and so I was simultaneously writing and producing it and, and everything in my just a very humble apartment bedroom studio. And it turned out pretty cool. Uh, and it was, I was just like pretty proud of myself, honestly, mm -hmm. but that was just a single for that, for that, uh, project that he was doing, Dave Eggers was doing. And, uh, I think the second song I wrote for that was like the day after two days after November 8th, when Trump was elected. I mean, I will say I wasn't, I'm not a Trump fan, so I'll, I'll say that. And so, uh, I wrote this song called giant and, um, that was the second song I wrote. It was kind of about how the glass ceiling is for women is quite high, <laughs> a little bit farther out of reach than everybody thought. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, I was like, oh, I kind of have like, there's a concept kind of brewing here. And I love concept albums and, and Pink Floyd and all that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So that was a bit of an inspiration. And from there, I saw just, I had some seeds of ideas I was writing and I ended up coming up with 10 or 11 songs over the course of the next year that I recorded and I recorded it all by myself uh, in my home studio. Uh, and that was cool. I mean, it's a lot of work to do that all by myself. So I, I think I was just kind of like a challenge a bit. Mm -hmm. And then for myself and my wife, Katie Ross, who's uh, also my manager and does a lot of work in the music business uh, in LA where we live. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking, she's a huge podcast fan and she, this is 2016, 17 and podcasts were around, but serial like was the first like huge podcast, like uh, viral or just cult classic or pop mm -hmm. culture, not cult classic at all. It was like a pop culture thing mm -hmm. um, when cereal became big and then floodgates of podcasting started to open up sure. if, like, you know, cause anything is possible, right? Uh, you can, it's a total blank canvas. You can do whatever you want as you surely know. Mm -hmm. And, um, <laughs> and so she was telling me there's an opportunity here because of what you're talking about, because of the nature of the politics in America to do a podcast. Um, and, we developed it over the course of a few months with some serious podcasters help and people who are in public radio who do storytelling and stuff like that um, in terms of laying it out because it's like, it's a world, it's like making a movie sometimes if you're the production of it, it's like you need to plan and mm -hmm. uh, write and, and prepare and all this stuff and interview, cut the interviews at, you know, all that stuff. So the first episode was amazing to do it uh features dave eggers and we talk about his work he did a bunch of stuff for probably i think the new yorker and new york times where he would go to trump rallies and kind of ask people what you know what they thought and and he got a, kind of a gauge of people and we talked about the state of america and so in the first episode we had three guests dave eggers is the first one the second one was podcaster named Glenn Washington. Um, and he does a show called snap judgment, uh, which is on WNYC. And he was telling me about how he grew up in a, he's a black man, black from a black family. And he grew up in a white supremacist Christian cult. <laughs> wow. And that's in, interesting. In, in Michigan. Uh, it wasn't like overt how it was white supremacist. It just kind of was, um, but he was kind of saying how his family got the hood pulled over their eyes or the wool pulled over their eyes, whatever it was, uh, and kind of got tricked by this con man. Um, and so the first episode is all about kind of the insanity of the, the politics in our country at that time. And so he talks about his experiences being in this cult and the kind of, uh, cognitive dissonance like where you kind of suspend your beliefs so that or you you ignore what you see just so that your beliefs are upheld like sure and i'm not smart enough to say that correctly but i hope hopefully you understand what i'm saying no i, I get where you're going <laughs> and 
And then the final guest on that episode is uh, Professor Lee Ross. He's uh, kind of a giant in the psych, uh, social sciences field, and he's a professor at Stanford, and he, t- he talks about kind of why people do the things they do and think the way they think and why there is a kind of a tribalism um, effect going on and why how people feel close to each other and how you can create a sense of community even when there isn't one uh, of a case of us and them. Uh, and it was, it was a very interesting episode, which I round out with kind of like a, a breakdown of my album of the song. And so I talk about how I wrote it and I play some samples of demos and I separate the tracks out so that you can hear the drums, hear the guitars, hear the vocals individually. And I kind of tell you how I wrote it, how I produced it and just kind of a thing for me, for the music people, because prior to that, the only thing musical about it, was the soundtrack, which is also part of uh, it. Sorry, one second. Mm-hmm. The, so- the soundtrack to the episode is always like sub mixes of the actual song that is getting released at the end. So the song on the first episode is called Brother, Can You Spare Some Peace of Mind? So throughout, like on Dave Eggers' interview, I have the drums playing with the bass without the vocals and stuff like that. And so I got to have a lot of fun with kind of remixing the song to make a soundtrack for the episodes. Oh, that's really um, cool. Yeah, it was very cool. Um, kind of a creative pursuit that I didn't think I would ever be doing. Um, mm-hmm. So I was doing that, doing the editing and stuff on that. And it was a very cool project. So there's about 10 episodes. Each one has a different theme. Voter suppression is another one. I talked to the ACLU head of uh, voting rights. And I talked about immigration with the ACLU head of immigration rights and so a lot of smart people are on on the podcast it's not mm-hmm. a music podcast per se sure so it's, you it's just kind of use a, music as kind of like the underlying theme correct you, and you put a, a new song per episode yes so that's how the album was released every week uh, a new episode and new song would be released and so by the end of it the album was released wow that's incredible yeah it was it was a lofty goal, but it was very cool to do. And at mm-hmm. that time, it was like a pretty new idea. I mean, I think it was a new idea. I don't think anybody had done anything like that. So well, I can't think really- of anyone that even to this, like, I'm, you know, to put out a record that way, as far as like in a podcast setting, I haven't. Yeah. I mean, it's it was, still pretty. <laughs> yeah. Unusual. If, mm-hmm. if, if not, you know, rare. Um, but it was, it was very cool. And what was interesting was that, I kind of occupy this space of, I write topical songs sometimes and I can be funny sometimes in my songs. So I've played a lot of events where it's not a music event. Like it's not a festival or something. It's like a, a book, a, a literature event or a, mm-hmm. a radio event or something like that, a, a, like an NPR event. Um, so I've met all these like kind of brilliant people that I don't really have any business meeting but I end up becoming friends with them. And so I drew upon those people for this podcast, like Dave Eggers and, and Glenn Washington, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a cool way to kind of like draw on that sure. history of my career. Yeah. And once, well, where were you at? Cause the, the whole record came out in 2019. Correct. I was and in then- LA. I wrote the whole thing in LA basically right up at my house. Okay. And then from there, like what, how, where were you at when this whole pandemic hit? Still in the same place. Uh, and I live in LA um, and uh, I was in the Bay area for a long time, but I've been in LA for like four years. Okay. And uh, yeah. And how did, so, how did that affect you? Like, I mean, how did that affect you as far as, I mean, obviously it affects you because you're inside, but um, you ended up putting was, out the preacher yeah. uh, substitute preacher part two. And do you, was that all birthed out of this whole pandemic? Almost all of it, but there's one or two where it was recorded earlier at a previous session that I kind of dug up that I didn't have the files to anymore. Kind of long, kind of a long lost thing. Okay. Um, but then a friend of mine still had it. The guy engineer who who ran the session still had a couple of these, um, and then the rest were done uh, in my studio at home. But the pandemic was like, 
like certain things in life kind of flip a switch in terms of your mentality. And I think a lot of people felt that uh, when everything shut down, it's like, okay, how, like now I have to deal with this. And like, so you kind of gear up and you go for it and you figure everything out and you like, I didn't panic or anything, I guess. I was just like, okay, I, we have to do this stuff for our daughter, mm-hmm. uh, deal with school and, and everything. Oh, yeah. Really um, on that, man. I got two kids. That was a challenge in oh, itself. <laughs> so are they so are they back? Did they get to go back at the end of the year this year? Well, we ended up moving out of I'm from San Diego and we ended up moving to Nashville. So when we got okay. here, uh we got here a couple months ago. Um, they're all in school. So oh, once we moved here, everyone was I mean, they were able to go face to face. But cool. I mean, obviously with masks and, and all that, but it was a lot different than trying to continue <laughs> on yeah. Zoom calls and all that other thing, mm-hmm. uh, all the fun that came with that. So right, yeah. So like it was, it's hard to make. You have you have two kids. I only have one, but obviously they like come first in sure. almost every situation. So you had a parent and 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 you know cover all their needs, and then you have to figure out how can you milk out some energy to do the things that you want to do. Like, <laughs> right. like I want to play music or write or produce or do something. Um, so a lot of like, I think at first I was just like, okay, I, I have to like consolidate all my stuff and like turn my studio <laughs> into a part-time learning center for my child. Um, and it wasn't too bad. I didn't panic. I guess I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert in a way. So I've, I've heard that introverts can kind of, kind of dealt with the situation. Okay. And sure. extroverts kind of had a bit of a, you know, a harder time. Um, but I've, I've been rehearsing for that moment where I, there's no studios open and you got to record at home. I've been preparing for that moment for a long time now um, or had been. And so I, it was fine for me. Um, in a way, because I was still able to do almost everything I, I usually did, except have friends over to mm-hmm. record or go over to their house. Uh, but that wasn't terribly inconvenient. And I got better at, at recording. And I just kind of took some time to do some things that I wanted to do, like learn how to play piano and like singer songwriter type piano and get better at that. And mm-hmm. I did that a bit. And, um, so you're able to yeah. adapt, adapt pretty. I was, and I, I have, ri- I actually have written enough for another album over the course of the last year or whatever. So uh, as soon as I get that kind of finalizing, and I'll probably work with Sam Kassir again on on some of it. Sam Kassir is the producer of the Beeman album and uh, the uh, Rhythm and Reason albums. And uh, he's actually on like all my albums in some fashion. Um, he's also produced like for Lake Street Dive and Josh Ritter and Langhorn Slim and a bunch of people. Oh, wow. Um, so he's awesome. Um, but uh, that hasn't happened yet. I haven't sent him anything yet because I was just, I just released this uh, covers thing. So I was simultaneously uh-huh. just doing the covers thing and, and original material and, working with other people actually I was doing like some things I would never have thought I would do uh being in LA I got to work on some like some EDM songs that actually they needed I mean they're not EDM they're like pop songs uh but they have dance elements and they needed acoustic versions of these um so I got to work on these David Guetta songs I got to work on uh, Steve Aoki songs yeah, I uh, saw that. Cool. You got to work with Kira, who, who we've interviewed before. Yeah. Um, oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, she sounds cool. So I got to like work with these vocal files from these major releases. Like, there's a song called "Heartbreak Anthem" that's like kind of enormous right now by Galantis. Uh-huh. Um, and Galantis is has uh, this guy Christian from Mike Snow and a bunch of other projects he does, but. Um, he's awesome he's like an amazing producer but basically they do like their huge pop edm song and then they needed like an acoustic one so i've been doing the guitars for that and 
some harmonies every once in a while and just kind of like doing this weird job that I never thought I'd be doing. Um, so that's been kind of cool. That's awesome. Um, just a different hat. Yeah. So you have to like kind of uh, rework the song into like an acoustic version. Yeah. And I get to like sneak in stuff that a pop producer who puts an acoustic guitar in wouldn't think to do. I like would, will do something like a Neil Young thing or something, some, <laughs> old, some little inside joke for myself. I'll, sure. I'll, I'll do some stylistic stuff that they probably wouldn't have thought of. And it's cool. It's fun. That's really cool. That's awesome. Well, um, yeah, I love the the covers record you just put out. Uh, I think it's awesome that you did Magic Carpet Ride. That was one of my favorites. And Paranoid <laughs> by Black Sabbath. Thanks. Um, yeah. How was it? Was it hard to choose songs or were those just ones that you, you know, I have a lot quite of, a bit? Yeah, well, I have a lot of covers kind of like I, I try out. Um, some are just like kind of better and feel better as I mm -hmm. play them. Um, and those ones felt way better to me. They feel like actual songs as opposed to me just like acoustifying uh the electric version right. um it seems like it's my own and so i really work hard to make it my own if i can um and make it almost unrecognizable until you hear the chorus um uh -huh. like i mean there, all along the watchtower uh is like a great example of this that cover song being bigger than the original um Sure. By Jimmy. Yeah. Um, so that obviously that's a lofty goal, but that's that's my bar, I guess I would say. So I'm always kind of looking for that. And even like Ray Charles is like kind of a master of arranging covers of other people's songs. Um, he would do like Colt. Good. I'm pretty sure he did some Colt Porter stuff, but he would just like draw on these songs and really make them make them his own. And that's also inspiring. And part of my my thing is like to kind of go back in time and and almost reverse engineer the song so mm -hmm. that it's almost like acdc is doing a cover of back my back in black it's, that's my what i'm thinking but uh so my back in black is kind of an everly brothers johnny cash style mm -hmm. song um which uh, on the surface is just kind of funny uh but it's also cool and it, it works to me yeah um and what else is on there? Paranoid is like, yeah, kind of country gospel style. Mm -hmm. um, and Magic Carpet Ride was fun. It's almost like a child song. I mean, the lyrics are a little bit childlike, but. Oh, totally. I, I kind of made it very light. Obviously, the original is like pretty heavy, uh, especially that intro and, and everything. But um, yeah, I just was trying to have fun with it. Mm hmm. I mean, naturally, over time, you kind of whittle things down to what's good and what's not so good and what's bad and all that. So it just over the course of time, it whittled down to those five or six that made it on there. I love it. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, man, for, for chatting with me today. Thanks. I really, really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Um, before Hopefully I let you go. You yeah. So, sorry. I was going to say no, before. Go ahead. I, just I was going to say before, uh, before I let you go, I want to know if I can get... Uh, if you had any advice for aspiring artists. Yeah. If you, I would say for a couple of things, first believe in yourself. And if you don't believe in yourself, probably no one else will. <laughs> Second, I would say. I, something I've learned over the years is that second guessing your instincts is not a good idea. Um, you can, especially killing the momentum of your instincts. Um, I think you can edit what you've done down the line, but in the moment you should be a little bit more free and trust your instincts. Like kind of, I love baseball. So anytime I can, and I grew up playing a lot of baseball. So anytime I can like do a baseball analogy, I will, I will use it. But in baseball, they say, trust your hands. Mm -hmm. They like, they know what to do. Like, so you don't need to think about it too much. Um, and your instincts are an incredibly evolved supercomputer, I guess you could say. Like it's your instincts are doing something so, so highly evolved over the course of your life that you should not throw them away. Your first initial instinct, your, your first reaction to something. Like even now, 
if I'm about to do a guitar solo over one of my songs or if I need to do something and I'm like not recording it, I like, I won't even listen to the song. I will be like, I'm not ready to record. So I won't listen to it because I want to get the first reaction on tape or whatever on my computer. I want to record my first reaction and not do my first reaction and then kind of change it. I want to get the first one and then I'll, I'll continue recording and then it'll probably change. But that first reaction can also be amazing. It can be your best idea. Um, just like, I don't know, like in, yeah, I don't know. In life, trusting your instincts can pay off a lot, not just in music, but uh, all over the place. I love it. So that's what I would tell people. <laughs>